Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on this episode of Praising Kane. Today, we're going to look at Laverne and Shirley from their eighth season, possibly their worst, as well as the adaptation of Richard Foreman's avant-garde theatrical piece, Bad Medicine. Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guide, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is the ontologically hysterical Doug Tilly. Doug, how's your life right now? It's not too bad, Liam. You know, it's uh, this is our first episode that we're recording in the year 2023. Fair. Uh, and stuff does not feel very different so far, I have to say, uh, which which should give the indication that things are bad. But, uh, but no, so far, up to this point, it's still early enough in the year that it hasn't hit me all the potential tragedy that is yet to come. Yeah, there is a sort of dread to each new year ever since 2020. I mean, really, I, I feel like um, I feel like what I'm really praying for is the end of 2020. It's just yeah. been the one long year of suffering <laughs> since then, and yeah. I would just I'd really like to move on. But you know that that being said, uh, I know I like to complain a lot. I'm known as a, a bit of a complainer. Uh, I'm in a pretty good mood, Doug. I feel pretty good. You know, oh. no, nothing terrible has happened Uh-oh. yet. I know I'm setting us up. I'm setting us up for for suffering. Now, I, I, some some would say that today's episode is a is a little slice of suffering for us, uh, but but maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe we'll surprise people by actually liking this bullshit. I don't know. We'll see what's going on uh, later on. Uh, before that, Doug, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the latest Carol Kane news. Oh, we're just going to get right into it, are we? <laughs> well, did you want to talk some more about uh, the 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 fear and loathing? of 2023 or do you want to just I mean I wouldn't forward? mind doing it but you know I was reading a tweet yesterday about okay. someone complaining about podcasts saying yeah. it's like how come so many podcasts start with like people talking about what kind of sandwiches they like and shit like that why don't they just get to the topic at hand and I both agree and disagree right? you kind of would hope that if you're listening to a podcast on a regular basis that you enjoy the personalities of the people that are making it. And if you enjoy those personalities that you would want, you know, maybe have some curiosity about their day-to-day lives and the things that they enjoy and don't enjoy. Though I have to admit there are some podcasts where the people or person that hosts it, they talk about themselves a little too much. I don't think we make that mistake generally, but, uh, but now I maybe just as a, as an act of rebellion, I just want to talk about my day, Liam, and, and how things are going generally for as long as possible. Well, my general rule, Doug, is if that um, I don't care about it, the audience certainly doesn't. So that's my right. That's my sort of. Oh, feeling I see. You're of, taking a little shot there. Yeah, yeah, I am right taking now. a little shot. I, 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 I think this idea that all podcasts, much like music or or film or whatever, all need to be the same thing, is silly. Like you just need to be good at what it is you do. There are podcasts I listen to where they don't talk about anything. Right? I'm a big Jordan Jesse Go fan. That's just people talking to each other about bullshit. There's just words. You know, there's nothing there. There's no point. There's no, I, I guess it's funny. I don't know. I, I just, I like it. You know, it's. <laughs> I think they're known for being funny. That's kind of the deal, right? Yeah. I did. That's a stretch, I think. Um, okay. I don't know. I don't listen. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so for people who want to get to the point, it would be torture, right? But, uh, but I'm also okay with shows that do get to the point. You know, some of the shows I like, where I even like the personalities of the hosts. 
they don't spend a lot of time at the beginning other than on a preamble that connects to what it is they're going to ultimately talk about, right? It's not right, sort of random. Right. So I think well, it can we need go... lore, right? That's what we need in our podcast, like lore, yeah. like long-standing and yeah. in-jokes. Yeah, right. that's true. I do think a lot of in-jokes that if you haven't been listening since the beginning, you wouldn't understand. I think that would be – I think that would make sense, you know, like, I don't know, a talking cat. <laughs> Talking cat. Okay. Uh, hey, let's talk about some Carol Kane news. Sure. <laughs> uh, Hunter's trailer shows group working to bring Hitler to justice in final season. We've talked a little bit about how we probably aren't going to get to cover Hunters, right? That's probably not a thing we're going to do on this show. Hunters is an Amazon Prime television show about Nazi hunters in the late 1970s. Yep. Uh, Carol Kane is obviously on it, or we wouldn't be talking about it on the show. But also, uh, it's Al Pacino... And I'm assuming other people, I probably know who they are, but I don't know who they are. Do you know who they people oh, are? Oh, there's some the famous people on Hunters, probably. Saul, I know Saul Rubinek is on it. A fam- okay. okay. Famous Canadian actor uh, who we talked about briefly on our episode of the George Kennedy podcast about the movie Death Ship. Is that what it was called? <laughs> yes, yes. He's, he's the guy who gets hung out. He was like the annoying entertainer guy who dies very early in the movie. But um, that is the extent of my knowledge about the film Hunters, sorry, the television show Hunters, outside of the fact that it's produced by Jordan Peele. Looks like uh, Jennifer Jason Lee is going to be coming hey. back. So uh, the reason this is news, besides the fact that if you just like Hunters, you want to know if there's another season or not, is it's been a bit, right? It's been, uh, yeah. what does it say, three years? Nearly three years since the first season yeah, premiered? Yeah, yeah. That's a big deal. And I, I mean... We don't have to say why, right? We all know why. It's been three years. Like we all generally know what happened, um, but I, I think it it matters to the extent that at a time when it seems like a lot of shows are being abandoned by streamers, you know, like a lot of shows that to me sure. I thought had fan bases. Like a, a great example would be Westworld. You know, uh, I don't know that I care that much about Westworld going away, but I know there are people for whom the utter disappearance of that show is like a huge blow to them because they really cared about it. So knowing that this show, which had this one season so long ago is suddenly back, it's, you know, that's, I think that's interesting. Um, Like you said, it's uh, even though you have no interest in watching it at all. I mean, it's uh, how comforting. (laughs) I mean, well, I mean, you tell me, Doug, you haven't watched it. Uh, I think your immediate response would be, well, I'm too busy, but take away the busyness. Are there other reasons that you're not going to watch the show? Well, yeah, the, the response to the first season wasn't particularly positive. People were not raving about it. And there's a lot of shows that people are raving about that. I know I would love that are in line in front of it. I would say the concept sounds really fascinating. And I like the, the cast of which I know. And I love, you know, I, I, I I was going to say, I love Al Pacino. I like Al Pacino and I love him in some roles. Um, and of course, Carol Kane is always going to be a draw for me. And and honestly, at the time it came out, the fact that Jordan Peele was one of the producers on it was a big selling point as well. Which isn't to say I've I've soured on Jordan Peele. It's just that you know he was the producer on that kind of iffy Twilight Zone reboot, and mm-hmm. um, his name just doesn't necessarily mean to me that he was working on it on a day to day basis. You know that sort of thing. But I mean, you know, if it was on, and I really liked say the first episode. Uh, I say if it was on, as if it was like a traditional like over the <laughs> TV show. Yeah, no, exactly. but if I saw the first episode and really liked it, I probably would continue on to it. It's not you know a massive uh, time commitment. I think for me watching it, and I've only now seen the trailer for this new season. Al Pacino seems to be working on that level of Al Pacino that I don't necessarily love, right. um, and that probably would keep me away from it as well. Yeah, I think Al Pacino is a is a tough cookie when it comes to stuff like this. Um, 
you know, I, I was recently thinking about Al Pacino and Heat, right? And I think yeah. I think that's the <laughs> I think that's the last time I enjoyed Al Pacino doing Al Pacino. And even then, like even now watching Heat, it's like, okay, okay, buddy. All right. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah, no, that's great. Like I just I, I I'm already sort of tired of it at that point. And that's what is that, thirty years ago at this point? So like, yeah, man, it's time. <laughs> it's I just think that this this thing that he's been doing for so long, it's uh, it's just not it's not what I want. And uh, can we and hear so, your your Pacino? Come on, hear your. We've been doing a lot of impressions on the uh, shows lately. Uh, what is it? What is the thing? What is the comment from Heat? Does he say something about a huge ass, like or something? Yeah, I, yeah. a huge ass, huge ass. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. hoo ah, that stuff, right? Yeah, but we, I mean, we watched Dog Day Afternoon for this very podcast. And I don't think anyone can argue, that. and no one can argue that he wasn't great. I, I mean, maybe yeah, people do. But I think the idea that you could argue he wasn't great—it's different than Robert. Taylor. I still think he's great. I mean, I, I rewatched uh, The Insider fairly recently. Sure. Uh, when I was watching all the Michael Mann movies, and he's great in that. And that came out after Heat, and but same director. Yeah, but he's not doing. No, he's not. He's, he's not very, doing he's Pacino. Like, he's serious Pacino. Yeah, that. that's that's what I'm saying. Like that, even when he was younger, he did a thing that he became known for, but it was still kind of enjoyable then. I'm saying. The last time he did the Pacino that everyone's so familiar with, and I didn't find it frustrating, was in Heat. That doesn't mean he can only do the Pacino, but I think in the last 15, 20 years, I can't think of a lot of roles where he didn't do the Al Pacino. I'm not saying he never uh, 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 goes away from that character. I think he does, and when he does, it's great. But watching the trailer for this, both this season and the season before, Seeing him do that makes me go, I don't know. And there's not enough else there for me to be excited about. So I, I don't know. You think they're gonna get you think they're gonna track down Hitler in this season? I mean that's I, what it's I would, all about. I would love for them to go. I mean, they've they're already there's two kinds of ahistorical, right, Doug? There's the ahistorical where we pretend like we're not ahistorical, and then there's the ahistorical where we go, All right, come on, we're just doing it. Who cares? You know? Um, and so I would love for them to just go full like who fucking cares what happened in real life? We're going to do whatever. I think that's yeah. kind of fun. You know, I like that. But I mean, I think um, I also just don't know. I, having not watched it, I don't know this. Is this is this group of hunters connected to Mossad? Is this like uh, uh, is this completely detracted from history or is this representative of the actual hunt for Nazis that happened in the real world? Uh, I can't speak to that, and uh, the trailer didn't tell me with any detail. It seemed a little more comic booky. I than... think I think it is, and I, and I think that would be appealing to it. But I don't know. Anyways, let's move on. I'm I'm done talking about hunters. We're probably we'll we'll both be dead before we get to it for this show anyway. So it's fine. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I know. Woof. Uh, all right, who's in the U.S. remake of Friday Night Dinner? I did not read this ahead of time. Give me a second. No, I, I figured you didn't. This is from a website called Chortle, Liam. It's a U.K.-based website about comedy called Chortle. <laughs> I don't, I'm already not into the story. Okay, hey, so, Let me do it for you. Yeah, let me take over. Well, okay, well, I, tell me about – I want to know, going into this, what is Friday Night Dinner? That's where I think we should start because I, I think assuming that anyone knows what that is is a very Canadian thing. Well, it's not a Canadian thing. It's a U.K. thing. Uh, it's a assuming that Americans know about things in the U.K. is a very Canadian thing. Well, I mean, that's fair enough, I suppose. I've never seen it. It's a, it's a show from the U.K. called Friday Night Dinner uh, produced and created by Robert Popper. 
a very well-known kind of a showrunner in the UK. Uh, but the the um, the only reason that we're bringing it up is that it's being remade, apparently still being filmed in the UK, which is kind of odd, uh, but it's being filmed as a TV show called Dinner with the Parents. And one of the people involved with that is Carol Kane, who's going to be taking on one of the uh, the lead roles in it, as well as YouTuber Daniel Thrasher. Do you know this person, Liam? No. <laughs> and Julia Louis-Dreyfus's son, Henry, are going to be is going to be in the uh, cast of this. Oh, so real, really star-studded is what we're saying. There's some more. There's some familiar faces in the cast, like proper, but maybe it's better that it doesn't have a lot of familiar faces. That's I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. speak to the quality of the original series because I've never seen it. But I, I just, I mean, it's still very notable that Cal Kane is going to be in another upcoming television show. Yeah, it seems like she's actually getting a lot more television work lately. I don't know if that's as a result of Kimmy Schmidt or not, because I don't know if anyone noticed when she was on Kimmy Schmidt in that way, you know what I mean? But it does seem like she's doing more, not less, which I, I very much appreciate. Uh, speaking yeah. of, speaking of her doing more, Doug, I had a question for you. Sure. Do you still watch the Simpsons? Uh, I haven't watched an episode of the Simpsons. The last one I watched was probably a Halloween episode, maybe a decade ago. It's been a very, very long time. Now, yeah, I guess I should say uh, Contemporary Simpsons. Uh, that is a move to watch Contemporary Simpsons that I do not understand. If we're talking about old Simpsons, I've watched it a ton. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Even, even with Maeve. Maeve loves the Treehouse of Terror episodes, I think because she understands that there's no stakes. Every story on a Treehouse of Terror, everyone who dies is alive, not on the next right. episode, but on the same episode. So for yeah. her, it's like a way for her to see seemingly spooky things, but then they don't matter because within the same episode, those characters are alive again. That's interesting. Yeah, she yeah. loves it. She's Every Halloween now for the last few years, she's like, Simpsons, we got to do the Simpsons. And she's convinced because of that, that she is a Simpsons fan Though she's literally only seen two episodes of The Simpsons that aren't Trias of Terror episodes. So I'm not convinced she actually likes the rest of the show, but she does love Trias of Terror. I well, the funny it. thing is that she could watch exclusively Treehouse of Terror episodes at this point and still watch the length of a season's worth. Yes, plus. 100%. I think we have, actually, <laughs> thanks to Disney+. Plus. Um, I'm bringing it up, Doug, because Carol Kane was recently on a episode of The Simpsons from November 20th. I, I asked because I thought maybe you had watched it live. You didn't because you don't care about <laughs> Carol Kane. Uh, I did. Uh, until no, yesterday, I didn't. Liam, I didn't, I didn't know it. that this episode even occurred, even yeah. though we have a Carol Kane podcast. <laughs> this, uh, this episode was called Stepbrother from the Same Planet. It's the eighth episode of season 34, Jesus fucking Christ. This yeah. is, I, I think this question of, uh, of The Simpsons is going to become relevant in a little bit when we talk about the TV show we're talking about here. But uh, The Simpsons have been on for 34 seasons. Uh, uh -huh. Episode was written by Dan Weber and directed by Matthew Faunin, I think is how you pronounce that. Oh, uh, okay. Guest stars Carol Kane as Blythe and Melissa McCarthy as Calvin. Um, interesting uh, team up there. That sounds like a movie I'd actually want to watch. Um, Homer stunned by his feelings of rage and resentment when Grandpa becomes... Why the fuck would you want to see that movie? Because <laughs> I, I like both those people, actually. Homer stunned by his Well, I mean, look, rage. I have no problem with Melissa McCarthy as a comedic actress, but like her movies are almost always fucking awful. <laughs> I have a much more mixed opinion of her movies than is generally accepted by people. I will say, okay. I will say recently, yes, especially when they're directed by her husband. Yes. They are bad. But even as bad as they are, 
I don't find them, the ones that I've been forced to watch, I don't find them to be total torture movies. I just know it doesn't make sense that she keeps doing them because she's done some <laughs> other things that were more serious and then pretty good in them. So I kind of wish she would pivot to some more serious stuff that was, you know, still comedic in some ways, but had a bit of a more serious tinge to it. Yeah. And also her husband's movies are both critically and financially disastrous. Always. Yeah. So why are we still doing them? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, as I was saying, the episode is Homer stunned by his feelings of rage and resentment when grandpa becomes a doting stepfather to his girlfriend's quirky young son. Meanwhile, Lisa and Bart throw the ultimate slumber party. Uh, Doug, you know, I know you love Carol Kane, uh, despite your hatred of Melissa McCarthy and your wishing for her to fail in all things. Uh-huh. Do you think mm-hmm. you're going to find this episode just to see Carol Kane do a voice of a character named Blythe? I will say that realizing that this episode existed in the world was my first tinge in a while of wanting to check out an episode of The Simpsons. I have to say, like, I, I it's, it's not that I need to push against the narrative that only the first nine seasons of The Simpsons are, like, great television. Nine! You went with nine. Yeah, I think nine is... is Some people go eight, some people go ten. I'm going safely. That nine still has a lot of classic episodes as well as wow. some garbage. Um, Buddy, but, I'm, I'm, a, I'm in till 15. Without a doubt. 15? Are you out of your fucking mind? 100%. 100%. I'm in till 15. I didn't No stop. way. Yeah, 100%. Does, isn't, even, isn't even that the flashback episode, the the um, uh, alternative episode, the grunge one in within that range? I think so. <laughs> and you know what? But it's funny because I, I just suddenly got upset about that, even though my whole... The whole idea, what I was going with, was that, hey, it's probably had a bunch of ups and downs and a lot of great episodes that I just am not even fully aware of because I haven't watched in, like, <laughs> a decade. Uh, so maybe it's maybe it's good right now, and I should probably duck in. Look, I used to love, ever, as everyone of our generation did for the most part, I fucking loved The Simpsons. And yeah. those first 10 and, and plus seasons, like, probably up to 15, I watched those episodes over and over and over and over to the point where I know them inside and out. Uh, but it's, uh, but, and, and I will say that the, the narrative that exists out there in some people's mind that the show didn't, didn't, uh, fall off, that it was just people got older. That is untrue. The show got worse. There's no doubt about that. There's no way to, if you watch an episode from season four and then watch an episode from season 15, I guarantee you, you'll see a fucking difference in terms of quality. But I mean, it has the potential still, you know, it still has a lot of talented people involved with it. I thought the Simpsons movie was pretty good. So, um... And though that was what more than a decade ago at this point as well, uh, maybe I will check it out. Maybe I'll check it out and I'll report back and tell you whether The Simpsons is still worthwhile or not. This is so funny to me because I I hear what you're saying, um, and I have actually watched occasionally newer episodes. But again, newer means within the last you know twenty years. <laughs> I, I guess I mean more like the last. Uh, uh, 13 years I've watched an episode or two that were fine you know they were they were pretty good for I watched them because they had a guest person on it or something like that but uh but it is hilarious to me because you're like after nine I'm done and I 100% have episodes of like uh, you know I, I can't really remember any on 15 but uh like 10, 10 through 13 there's definitely episodes that I love in those seasons well fucking so. name a classic then buddy 
I, I can at least name that like the the one where they go to New York, which I think is in the ninth season, is a, is a really good episode. I do love that episode a lot. That is so fucking good. It might be in the eighth season, by the way. <laughs> I think that, I think Homer's enemies in the eighth uh, season, which you know a lot of people think of as a turning point for the entire show. You think so? Well, some huh. people think of it as uh, yeah. Okay, so yeah, well, season nine has the city of New York versus Homer Simpson. So yeah, the, to me, like that is the season that the quality starts to get iffy. I think it has the one with that stupid join the navy garbage um but uh yeah so but yeah but homer's enemy because it's such a meta commentary on the show itself a lot of people think of it as like a a, a clear delineation between homer as lovable goof and homer as an idiot who just damages people's entire lives i yeah i mean i guess here here's the thing for me doug that i think is true um i have a nostalgia for things right that causes me to appreciate them probably more than I should. What I don't have is the other nostalgia that everyone else seems to have, which is it causes me to resent things more than I should. And uh, when people talk about their hatreds of seasons as old as 13 and 14, they sound like psychopaths. They sound like people who they were jilted by someone who wrote for The Simpsons and they become hypercritical in the way you only are of your uh, ex-lovers. It's psychotic. They sound like people who should be put away. And I don't understand that kind of nostalgia. It's like, yeah, I guess Homer is a weird character at that point, but it's still fucking funny. I jump off The Simpsons not because the character writing got a little soft or whatever. I don't care about that. The show made me laugh. And it stopped making me laugh around season 15 because the jokes just (laughs) got tired. They just ran out of fucking ideas. And I will say that later on, and I only know this from watching now The Treehouses of Terror, occasionally they would try out new ideas that were funny. But for the most part, I think they ran out of ideas about, I don't know, uh, midway through their 34 season run. Um, And now they've just been doing the same shit over and over again with different cultural trappings to try to keep it current, you know? And, uh, And that's a bummer to me, but I also wonder if how long can you work in this world that they're in and have it make sense, right? The, the 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 folks who have very strong meta commentaries about how the structure of it fell apart, um, I just think they're over-intellectualizing it. That's my feeling on it. They're, they're, I mean, I think that it, it would be hard to deny that the way that Homer's treated on the show changed between the 4th and 10th, 11th, or 12th season. Yeah. And that he is... It, it, be, it definitely becomes a little more mean-spirited. But then again, it was moving away from kind of the heartfelt sincerity moments of like sweetness that sometimes happen in seasons four and five and six. You didn't see a lot of that even in seasons eight and nine. So it's just something, it it seems like a natural evolution. Also still the idea of having to push out 22 episodes a season is ludicrous at this point. Well, I mean, I understand. I actually do understand that when people say that, because there are episodes of the Simpsons that are very touching and emotional. Um, I also think, the root of the Simpsons is not touching it. Matt Matt Groening had no intention for these people to be touching whatsoever. So like, I get it that they found some like heart to it uh, midway through that early section. But I also am just like, yo, man, it it for me it was funny when even when it wasn't that, and I'm okay with that. It's just I think I think um, the jokes got tired for me. That's that's what happened in my viewing experience. Is that not just that the characters became sort of cliches of themselves and and they found less and less new things to do with them it was more for me that um 
what they were doing. It just felt like it got very tired. I mean, and I, I, I feel like we're we're saying the same thing in different ways. It's the writing got worse, right? I mean, you could you could you could make funnier jokes. There are other animated shows that are funny. Right, right. So, I mean, you could just bring in funnier writers and have them do funny things with the people. Yeah. Just I, hard I, I just, so I, many of the stories have been told. I'm just less concerned with the characters. Like, like at a certain point, the show seemed to like move away from Bart. Like Bart had a lot of like real depth for a while there. And then one of the things that gets worse is like the way that they treat Bart also starts to change. And I think that really hurt a lot of people. And I could not give less of a fuck about that. Like, if it's fu- if it's funny, make Bart a guy who just farts every episode. I don't give a fuck. Like the, the, none of these characters matter to me in that way at all. He's probably been farting a lot more in the last decade, and I just don't know. Yeah, you know, what it, but you know what I mean. Like, like I think there's a sense in which people feel connected to the characters, and they want them. I, I feel connected in the sense of like. Uh, I like that Marge became more of a human. Like I like that. But if if suddenly Marge became mean later, that wouldn't bum me out if it still made me laugh. Oh, and that I guess that she's on steroids yeah. and and ends up sexually assaulting her husband. Yeah, that would be great. No, that happened. that's t- that happened. Does that happen? Uh, yes. I don't in one remember. of your beloved seasons, that happens. No, not in one of my <laughs> beloved seasons. Because I oh, that. I believe so, sir. I'm gonna look it up now. This, all by right. the way, you can I'm... cut. You can cut all this. I don't even care. <laughs> The strong arms of the Ma. It's from the 14th season. So I, I must mean to. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I must mean season 13 then. Because I don't remember this episode at all. I was just looking through the season 14 episode like descriptions. And I was like, I don't know any of these. I mean, it just goes uh, to show. I may have saw them when they first aired. But it's it's been a long time. But Liam, speaking about long-running sitcoms that have oh yeah off. yeah 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 <laughs> two thousand three, but so I was in college. Yeah, I guess that's right. I guess I I, I went too far to fifteen. It's more like I jumped off season fourteen because it was literally. It's more like, like it's more like season ten. Is probably what you're saying. <laughs> no, I watched it faithfully through college, but I graduated college in two thousand two, so I watched it faithfully through season thirteen. Oh well. All right, Doug, let's talk about Laverne and Shirley Season 8, Episode 8, Jinx. It aired on November 30th, 1982. I remember. I definitely watched that when I was three years old and it came out. That's not true. <laughs> I watched I Know Laverne and Shirley from syndication only. Uh, tossing out a chain letter seems to bring Laverne and those around her bad luck. So much so, they enlist the help of a... I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Roma spiritualist, as opposed to yes. the word they use, to try and remove the hex from her. Directed by Tom Trebovich. Trebovich? Trebovich? I don't know how you say that. Tom Trebovich? Uh, written yeah, I would by, say Trebovich. I think that's right. Uh, written by Tony DeMarco and David Ketchum. Uh, people, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to know, Doug. I feel like a lot of our audience is about our age. So I'm sure most people know <laughs> that Laverne and Shirley was a Happy Day spinoff. If you, if you didn't. Laverne and Shirley starred Penny Marshall, who people probably know, uh, uh, who are younger, as a director. Even then, though, they might right. not know. You know, she, uh, she hasn't done yeah. anything. You know, it's it's it's. Uh, I think she's in the conversation now because of the League of Their Own reboot. So I feel like people right. have been and the fact that she's about passed her. away. Right, right, right. But I mean, that's. Well, I mean, lots of people passed away that young people don't care about. But I mean, like, yeah, I think true. I think I've seen young people talking about her 
and their memories, if they have any of the original movie, because of the reboot. But, uh, you know, she was on this show before she was a director. Uh, and Cindy Williams is Laverne DeFazio and Shirley Feeney, two friends and roommates who work as bottle cappers in the fictitious Shots Brewery in the late 1950s Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, <laughs> FYI, if that was true for the whole show, then this might not be where we're at right now with this episode. From the sixth season onwards, the series setting changed to mid 1960s Burbank, California, which is so <laughs> cool. Uh, Mike, Michael McKean and David Landner co-starred as their friends and neighbors, Lenny Kuznowski and Andrew Squiggy Squigman. Uh, you know, Doug, I watched the show in syndication for so long before I figured sure. out Mike McKean was the guy on in Spinal Tap. Like I, I mean, I, he looks exactly the same. I don't know how you. Could I couldn't. Could I never could make that connection. <laughs> I was a full adult. I, I say full adult. That's not true. I was in college when I was like, "Oh, that's the Laverne and Shirley guy." Like I don't know why I I couldn't make that connection when I was a kid. Uh, respectively, along with Eddie Mecca as uh, Carmine Ragusa, Phil Foster as Laverne's father, Frank DeFazio. Uh, wait, so Frank moves to Burbank too? I so some or of this was is Frank in Burbank already. Is that why they moved there? I don't. I find this all very confusing. Uh, and I didn't watch enough. I mean, I've seen episodes from the first few seasons. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. when people think of Laverne Shirley, they think of them in Milwaukee. Yeah. They don't think of seasons like full seasons six, seven, and eight, which take place in fucking Burbank. And this particular season, where there fucking is no Shirley anymore. Yeah, guys, uh, she, you know, Cindy Williams wanted to leave the fucking show, so she, her character gets married off episode two. Now, granted, this is the last season, so I guess, yeah, there was some knowledge on the their part. I, you know, I, I don't think the fact that this is the last season shows their gracefulness as showrunners, because that would have meant there was only five seasons, honestly. But, um, but for whatever reason, they knew this was going to be. They could only do. 20 episodes without Shirley, right? Like, or something like that. So, uh, yeah, this episode that we watched, it's from the final season. There's no Shirley. They're in fucking California. I have a lot There's of There's no thoughts. Lenny or Squiggy. On no it. Lenny or Squiggy. <laughs> Fuck. Because Michael McKean was making Spinal Tap at the time, yep, and Squiggy yep. was still on the show, but he just isn't on this fucking... Nope. This is like, it's, this is almost unrecognizable as a Laverne and Shirley episode. It's just the Laverne show in Laverne yeah. in California. So they could have called it. Uh, okay. Before we get really into what we thought or before we get more into complaining about it, let's just get a general feeling from you, Doug, of how did this episode hit you? And in fact, even before that, I kind of want to know, you, you said it a little bit, but what is your familiarity with Laverne and Shirley? And then as at that level of familiarity, how did you feel about this episode? I mean, that Happy Days universe of shows, right, which included Mork and Mindy and Joni Loves Chachi. And all. I did watch some of those shows on first run as a kid, and I had a very kind of good idea of the style of humor. I mean, the, Happy Days is still a pretty beloved show by a lot of people. Um, so I kind of felt like I knew what to expect going into this. And I definitely had my expectations lower than, say, Taxi, which is a show that we covered on our most recent episode of Praising Kane. I knew that for in the mind of the of popular culture as a whole, shows like Taxi and Cheers, there was kind of a demarcation in terms of, of quality of sitcom where it jumped ahead uh, if, for a lot of people. And this was even like a Norman Lear 70s type sitcom, which it, it tackled a lot of serious issues. It very much is like gags, character stuff. And I thought I would be able to enjoy it on that level. Liam, spoiler alert, I did not whatsoever enjoy this. <laughs> it's so fucking bad. This is one of the worst things we've had to watch 
as 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 podcasting partners, though it's not as bad as some of the movies we've watched for Eric Roberts, but in sure. that it's less interesting than those like some not all of them, but some of those terrible movies we've watched for Eric Roberts are at least interesting because it's like, what the fuck is going on? This was like it was really hard to watch because it was unfunny and boring. And uh, the only thing that carried me through watching it, Doug, was the Uh fact that I'm so unfamiliar with the show that I could not fucking figure out why they were in California and where the fuck Shirley was. (laughs) So that mystery (laughs) carried me through this 20 some minutes of television. Um, Yeah. I, 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 just so people know, I actually was more excited from a distance about this than I was about taxi. Because I grew up watching reruns of Laverne and Shirley in syndication. Now, I didn't love it when I was a kid, but it was fine, right? It was just something that was on UHF. You know, it was just something that was on while I was waiting for something else to come on. And, I, you know, I liked the theme song. I always thought the theme song was fun. And uh, and I, I didn't find it frustrating. And that was good enough for me at the time. It was only when it got closer to recording and I realized that we were in season fucking eight that I thought, Oh, this doesn't feel fresh. This might be not as as enjoyable <laughs> as I as I think it will be. And then it turned out to not only not be enjoyable, but be a goddamn mystery. Uh let's just let's just deal with the first of many elephants in the room, Doug. Um can you do Laverne and Shirley without Shirley? Is that a thing that can exist in the world? I mean, maybe. To me, the comedy comes from the fact I mean, it's part of the comedy, it comes from the fact that they're working class people. Yes. You know? The idea that's like she's an aspiring actress in California, it just seems to go against the whole ethos of what the fucking show was. It feels like a completely different show from what I remember at the very least. Yeah. And the fact is, like in our, the episode that we watched, because all of the comic relief characters aren't there, they've had to put in a new one. In this case, played by Charles Fleischer, uh, Roger Rabbit's voice, and of course from Zodiac. And like he's just a weirdo, just a weird guy. Yeah, yeah. And that can work because I mean, you know, Lenny and Squeaky were kind of just weirdos as well. But it, like just trying to bring in this character, I don't even know if he's like a regular in the season or not. I don't think he is. And also, this episode's kind of weirdly mean spirited yep. because the whole crux of it is that she is has a jinx on her because she threw away a chain letter and she's hurting people accidentally. There's a part in this episode, Liam, and I could not believe what I was seeing. Where she is in Charles Fleischer's apartment, yeah, yeah, and yeah. she's bouncing a do- bouncing a ball for a dog to retrieve, and she ends up bouncing it over a balcony, and the dog jumps over it, and it's played for laughs that the dog is dead. I mean, we find out that the dog just broke all of its legs, which again is not very funny either. But she kills the dog, and we're supposed to be like, "Ha!" Huh! And the fucking studio audience is losing it. They think it's the funniest thing they've seen in their entire life. Doug, I could not. Please, what you are, is up you, with this? You are underselling this moment because <laughs> there. Th- this is not just the dog jumps off the balcony. This is Chekhov's the dog jumps off the balcony. Yeah, we know it's coming. That's right. We right. do like three minutes, I feel like, of them. Oh, dog's chasing the ball out onto the balcony. Oh, he's not jumping off this time, though. Like, you just, you know, from the way they start doing the ball scene. You know, but you're like, of course they're not going to do that. It's a sitcom. They're not going to kill a dog. Or a dog in peril is not going to be part of the humor. <laughs> oh, it Boy, is. they do go there. Oh, yeah. Fuck it, A, they do. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, yeah, this is this is painful to watch for a number of reasons. <laughs> not least of which is realizing, like, they, this show's on its last fucking legs. They've lost all sense 
of what the meaning of the show is. I mean, it is kind of funny that we were talking about The Simpsons before we came on here because, you know, like The Simpsons famously created the Poochie character to sort of mock, you know, or, or they did Poochie for Itchy and Scratchy, and then they did the Simpsons version of that to sort of mock when sitcoms run out of gas and they do whatever. Yeah, and then Roy, they went, I remember that. And then that's they right. went on for 20 more seasons, clearly <laughs> out of gas. And, uh, and that's like, you know, with this, like, Doug, how, how long is too long for a sitcom? Like, when do you end a sitcom? Like, for me, like, again, I wasn't watching the show. Maybe I'd go back and I'd feel differently. The moment you're in the writer's room and someone says, I don't know, let's move them to fucking Burbank, doesn't that mean the show's over? Like, isn't aren't we at that point clearly? We've decided after five seasons, Milwaukee's no longer fun and funny. So we should just end the show, right? Not move it to Burbank? Am I just being a pessimist? Like, what do you think about that? I think it could still theoretically work. Because, I mean, they could have... I don't know why they just didn't call it a spinoff, right? I mean, at this season, at least, they should have just called it Laverne and have it... Because they do that sometimes where characters move into a whole new city uh-huh. and they just continue going. Now, usually those are pretty bad. Those spinoffs tend to be. But it, but but Happy Days was the show of spinoffs, right? I mean, it had a ton of them and a lot of them were very successful. So maybe it could have worked. But it's this style, right? Because you could take this script and probably replace it for a half dozen other sitcoms of that era, just change a few names around, and it's the exact same shit. I mean, all the people who wrote for this show wrote for a dozen other sitcoms, and they're just like, like it's the same style of humor in all of them. So I suppose it could still work. Maybe it's just that these shows are just generally bad. Like, maybe this isn't so different from a fourth uh, season episode of Laverne and Shirley in terms of quality. Maybe it's just that the performers are better. I don't know. It's a little hard to say. I don't want to put like a, a an end date on it, but I will say that once the main cast starts leaving, it's probably time to wrap that shit up. Yeah, it just feels like why are we holding on for 20-some episodes without Shirley? I mean, is... if Dan Castaneda dies tomorrow, are they ending The Simpsons, right? Can, would we be able to accept another voice as Homer Simpson? In other countries, they have. They've replaced Homer Simpson several times. But, I mean, that that to me is like a... That's like a demarcation point. There are voices you could do without, but once Homer's gone, it's like, that's not The Simpsons anymore. I mean, the thing about The Simpsons, though, and I I don't want this to become a Simpsons podcast, is (laughs) I I suspect... That might be a popular podcast, so we can't. That's true. No, we can't. (laughs) I suspect what's going on with The Simpsons, Doug, is that there's a whole new audience for whom anything from the 90s is so old and stupid that they can't... Like, the moment you're making jokes about Bill Clinton, they're out. So the reason they can stick with The Simpsons is it's recycled jokes from other times in the Simpsons history, but with a modern panache. And that's what they yeah, Also the fact that it's not widescreen, those older episodes yeah. to the point where they yeah. even have them in widescreen versions. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So all that to say here, I, yeah, this, I am much more willing to be harsh when you're moving your Milwaukee show to Burbank, give it the fuck up. Like there's no, there's no reason to, you've lost the thread of why you were fucking doing the show in the first place. Also, could this, could this episode be like, this t- episode takes place in 1967. Right. What about it is 1967? Nothing, right? Nothing. It's not like the people are just as hippies or anything like that. They're in Nothing. California. Well, she does have a like Beatles. People. She has a Beatles poster, Doug. So I think you're not taking that seriously, her Beatles poster. I just remembered fucking Charles Fleischer has a poster of The Who, it was, which is a band that I'm very familiar with, from 1978 in his fucking thing. Yeah. So even that doesn't make – like 
They didn't look anything. Oh my god! Actually, now that I think about it, there's lots of shit that doesn't make no, sense. No, none of this makes any this. sense, Doug. It doesn't. You got to stop trying to make it make sense. Uh, let's. So on the episode, as you said, the, the main point here is that people begin to suspect that Laverne has some sort of curse on her, and then our uh-huh. our, our our girl Carol Kane comes in to be this very uh, uh, silly. Uh, Roma uh, fortune teller. Before that, though, one of the cruxes of the episode is that this friend of Laverne's is a, is an aspiring performer, singer, whatever. Uh, we yes. start the episode with her being stripped for laughs. Doug, did you like that? Was that one of your highlights of the episode when she got stripped for laughs? Was that fun for you? What happens is that Laverne steps on her dress and she pulls off the bottom part of her dress, and the the crowd, like again, the studio audience, think that this is so amusing that she's standing there in her underwear. I think it's just supposed to be like TNA stuff and she's covering herself. It is weird. It's nothing really kind of. Un- I can't think of the last thing I saw that was more 1982 than yeah. this fucking moment. You know, this like is an episode like, of Bizarre with John Biner, maybe. But I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is like this is like uh, the, 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 the people who wrote this thought Zapped was a cool movie. You know, like that's yes. the vibe. I mean, probably of, the, of this fucking shit, you know. Uh, and then she so later on at the pizza place, she's going to sing at the pizza place. And there's a famous because we're in Burbank now, Doug, not in Milwaukee, uh-huh. which, by the way, I didn't know. I suspected, but I didn't know. So I was like, what the fuck is this agent doing at a pizza place in Milwaukee? This agent or guy, some famous guy. He's a famous guy who does famous shit. And she's going to sing to this guy. Uh, it's 1967 on the show, I guess. Right. But the show is happening in 1982. If you're an audience member in 1982, does this plot make sense to you? Because in 2023, I was like, what the fuck is – I don't understand how this is moving the show forward, that she's going to sing in a pizza place and become famous. Like – what the what, what is this about, Doug? Is this just because we don't live in Burbank and we don't know that in Burbank, if you sing at a pizza place, you will soon be Whitney Houston or some shit? Like, I don't know what's going I on. Mean, I mean, because these shows are based on some sort of misguided nostalgia, right? Even Happy Days was, because uh, Happy Days is obviously about the 50s and now they've moved into the late 60s. It's just the idea that someone could be some discovered at an at an unusual spot, but this this isn't even one of those situations because he's specifically coming, even though he's supposed to be he's presented as like an asshole who isn't really paying attention. He's he's specifically coming to see her sing, and she decided to like it's her decision to do it at a pizza place because it's probably one of the few sets that they have available to them. Yeah. Uh, I mean it's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense, but I don't think having it make sense is a very important mm. um, thing that they care that much about. I mean, that's a good point, Doug. This is high-level humor that you love and makes you laugh very hard. When she starts playing the trumpet, I did. I found that, that kind of funny. That was actually the only. That was the only comedic insight the episode had was. And then she pulls out a trumpet, and I was like, "Okay, we're going full. We're going full. You know, abstract shit here. Let's just do it. You know, um, Doug. I I know that this is some high-level humor. This is really like the future of comedy on this on this episode." I want you to tell me about your famous, your favorite, other than the trumpet, your favorite hilarious joke from this episode that just fucking, it got you, you busted a gut, you busted a gut at this joke. It was so funny. You mean funnier than the dog dying? <laughs> yeah. A moment actually funnier than when a dog leapt to its death. Look, I will say that the highlight of this episode is when Carol Kane shows up, even if it is a 
you know, offensive stereotype of a. Uh, uh, to be fair, mystic. it's it's to be fair, it's not right. Like that's the joke. No. The joke is right, that exactly. she's like, "Hey, yo, I'm Carol Kane from Brooklyn." Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's the joke, and I prefer that as a joke to if she showed up and had some sort of fake Eastern European accent. That would actually right. be more offensive. One hundred percent. You could have so, Carol Kane do. She has done in other things. Yeah, no, no, but her character, I think, is the clear highlight. In terms of the structure of the episode, it's basically Laverne's getting in all sorts of trouble. She's hurting people. She ends up screwing up this audition at the pizza place. Uh, and so they bring in a, um, a fortune teller to come in and, and cure her of her jinx. And uh, we find out afterwards that they actually know each other because they went to school together, which just seems like an unbelievable coincidence when you really think about it. Uh, and so those interactions are pretty funny, <sighs> funny-ish <laughs> when they happen. And I think Carol Kane is really good in that role. And I'm not just saying that as someone who co-hosts a uh, Carol Kane-themed podcast. I think she is actually head and shoulders above everyone else in this episode. But I also have to say, like some of the supporting players in this season... Like the guy who plays, I guess it's her, not her boyfriend, but like a friend, Frank DeFazio. He's terrible. Uh, the, the the woman uh, played by uh, Leslie Easterbrook, who's the the singer, who's supposed to be like her um, bubbly, well endowed friend. Like she's terrible on it. I, it's just all these characters are so uninteresting that someone coming in with a comedic bent to it just seemed like the height of comedy, at least for a few moments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. They do that bit where it's just like uh, the crystal ball is hazy. Maybe it would clear up if you gave me five dollars. That sort of shit. You know what I'm yeah. talking about. I, I gotta agree with you, Doug. Just at the sa- at the at the simple conceit that Carol Kane does an admirable job in what is otherwise a, a terrible <laughs> thing, I will agree with you that that is true. Uh, but now that we have discussed it, I gotta ask Doug why did why the fuck did we watch this again? What was this? Why why were we watching this? Carol Kane was in it. Actually, the real reason was I had watched the movie that we're about to talk about. And uh, it, it's already, this is a tough sell. It's a movie that m- nobody has seen. You can watch it on YouTube, the movie that we're going to talk about after the break. But it has got like, it. in terms of its appeal to people, it almost is non-existent. I thought, well, let's pair it with something that people do recognize and featured Carol Kane from around the same time period, right? This was right in between like her starting a taxi, starting to do more sitcom work. It felt like uh, good timing, and I still think that it was, but um, somehow I ended up enjoying the sitcom less than I did the movie that we're about to talk about. I mean, I hear you, man. I hear you. Uh, <laughs> we're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about <laughs> this movie, 1981 Strong Medicine, and we're going to endeavor to discuss it in a way that's worth your time. Uh <laughs> What is what a sell you're doing here? Because <laughs> well, I'm just gonna own it that I think we both felt confused enough by this movie, challenged enough, let's say, by this movie, challenged that yes. we subjected ourselves to a shitty episode of Laverne and Charlie. So we'll be right back. Jesus Christ, my foot hurts. Jesus Christ, my feet hurt. I've been on them two days, I think. I admit, I thought it was much more than two days. Wait a minute. Is it still my birthday? Ah, I'm celebrating lady. I'm locked out. What about the celebrated lady? Ah, celebrated lady. Shut up and let her talk, please. Is it true? I always tell the truth. Most of the time. But that your feet are too big, or was it vice versa? Vice versa. 
Weiss birthday. I thought it was happy birthday. That goes without saying. But guess what comes as a present? One that's too small. Or what's called a tight fit. Okay, I'm just kidding. Strong Medicine is an avant-garde play about Rhoda, a hysterical heroine who feels oppressed by the people around her. She suffers through her birthday party, goes to see a doctor, plans a vacation, argues a lot, and even breaks the fourth wall. It's 1981's Strong Medicine. Uh, Now, this was written and directed by Richard Foreman. Uh, For people who don't know, he was an American avant-garde playwright and the founder of the Ontological Hysteric Theater. Now, uh, if you're like me, you are both immediately challenged and intrigued by the name of that because just including the word ontological, I'm like, ooh, what's that about? Um, To give you all an idea of what this is, uh, uh, Richard Foreman uh, was quoted as saying, there were normal bourgeois theater domestic triangle situations. That's why I called my theater ontological hysteric because the basic syndrome controlling the structure was a classical boulevard comedy syndrome, which I took to be hysteric in its roots. So uh, Richard Foreman founded this theater in 1968. Uh, and, and the aim of this was stripping the theater bare of everything but the singular and essential impulse to stage the static tension of interpersonal relations in space. That all sounds very academic language. But what's funny, Doug, is as highfalutin as that sounds, having not read this in advance like I should have, I was going to ask you if that's what was going on here. That was the yeah. sense I got watching this, is that rather than... Um, staging tensions into, uh, how do I want to put this? Not pretense, but into uh, melodramatic situations, which is usually how we explore those tensions between people or even between systems is how, how we think of it within a normal play. This piece seemed to strip all that away and just create the tension without, by the way, any context, which is pretty yeah. disorienting but we'll get into even that. chronological context is thrown yeah. out the window things just yeah. repeat and things go they're completely out of order um yeah i mean i thought that you might respond to that because it's sort of there's there's sort of a punk impulse behind it right it's this is a response to a certain I, kind of theater I, calling I mean, a, these are punks these are all calling people. calling everything punk that's not normal doesn't work for me i'm not into that but i will say <laughs> no i think it's specifically that this is a response to a overly structured kind of theatrical experience right that they're, sure. they're trying to to strip it to its bare elements yeah i just don't i i also suspect that a lot of what constitutes <laughs> punk was not as intellectually thought out as as, as this is. Uh, uh, I want to continue with this definition. The OHT seeks to produce works that balance a primitive and minimal style with extremely complex and theatrical themes. I think we'll talk about how successful that is in a little bit. The core of the company's annual programming is Richard Foreman's theater pieces, of which he has made over 50 in the last 42 years. I, I found that detail interesting because it is uh, something to keep in mind. When we're talking about this, I don't know how much this will be in our audience, but there might be people who check out this episode for whom Richard Foreman is a force in and of himself, right? Yeah. Who might watch this with the weight of his name. It's kind of like the difference between someone who has seen a a, a film by an auteur director before and they have an idea of what this person's work is about going in and someone who's never heard their name before who might not have any context for us, at least for me, I don't know about you. I didn't have any of that context sort of uh, going into it. 
Um, cast includes people like Kate Manheim, David Warlow, uh, Ron Vauter, Bill Raymond, uh, Harry Ruskalenko, of course, Carol Kane, uh, Raul Julia, Buck Henry, um, even uh, avant-garde filmmaking legend Jonas Mikas uh, shows up as well. Um, uh, Doug, you included this review. I don't know. Do we want to address this or not? Well, I, I, I mostly gave it as some context for yourself. You don't actually yeah, yeah, have to yeah, read okay. everything that I give you as notes. No, um, I just wasn't sure. I was like, I don't know if this is just for me or if this is something Doug wanted. Yeah, okay, I just I, I felt like giving an idea of what the response from critics was at the time might have given you a little bit more because I needed it too. I was doing a bunch of research because yeah. I was like, I'm going to have to talk about this. I need to know what the fuck I'm talking about. I have to say it did not provide as much illumination as I would have hoped. Now, um, for people who have seen this before, I want to be clear. We watched a what was clearly a VHS transfer complete with tracking issues and whatnot. Yes. I don't know that that was the experience of people who saw this originally, you know, or not. Like how was this originally presented, Doug? Do you know Oh, this was shown in, in, in cinemas. Absolutely. Right. So 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 it's entirely possible that some of the criticisms I would like to make about how this looks they're not justified, right? Because I'm watching a, a rundown VHS copy of it. So I, I don't want to get too much into that aspect of it. But uh, it is worth noting, I think, what our experience was, in case there is someone listening who has had the original theatrical experience and might have... <laughs> yeah, maybe. maybe. I mean, who the fuck? The, path, the, the likelihood of that is very, very small. I'm That's sure, it. Doug. Will, I'm just trying to be respectful. We'll put, we'll put a link to the YouTube version of this in the show mm-hmm, notes. So, mm-hmm. of course, anyone who wants to check it out can at least have our experience. Well, I think I think we've given a little bit of flavor of it, but Doug, I just want to start in the obvious place here, which is like, uh-huh. what did you what did you think of this? Uh, and and you don't have to over intellectualize that. We can get into some of the deconstruction sure. of it later. No problem. Just there. <laughs> just as a viewer, what did you think of this experience watching this? It's a very frustrating watch because what you are watching is a kind of theater, and really, what you are watching is a filmed play for the most part. It, it does not have a lot of uh, filmmaking flourishes. That, that separated from that experience, but without a lot of that excitement that comes from seeing something live in front of you. And uh, not that it would make any more sense, because sense is not what this is all about, but not that it would, it would be more comprehensible in that live format, but it definitely would be more palatable, because you could be more impressed by the staging of everything. In a filmmaking process, it feels very amateurish, you know, in this, in this kind of context. Um, and some of the editing feels a little rough as well. It just feels like it was a very low-budget production, which it almost certainly was. They could not have expected a huge audience for something like that. It's kind of a miracle that it exists in some ways. But the frustration really comes from the fact that if you have no background in this sort of theater, um, it is there's a surrealism in it that makes you feel very detached. Knowing what that plot summary was, that there's a woman who is... She has some sort of medical issue. She goes to see a doctor. She has a birthday party. She goes on a trip. That makes it sound like that there's a narrative that you can hold on to. But, and you probably would be able to pick that out of what you're seeing, but you still would have to pay attention even to know that a lot of that is happening because it's, it's all presented in kind of very dreamlike, very surreal, very detached, out of chronological order. Characters do not have conversations that make any kind of literal sense. It's all kind of inner monologues and things like that. And it's... Uh, it is designed to be off-putting, and that is exactly what my reaction was to it. I found it extremely off-putting and and difficult 
uh, in a way that I didn't find particularly pleasant. When I have, you know, I watch a lot of material. We have we have a podcast devoted to Alejandro Jodorowsky. I, I like surreal filmmaking. I like uh, experimental filmmaking. But this, you know, 90 minutes of this, by, I was ready for it to be over by the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to be clear. This is not. I, this is probably going to be offensive to anyone who actually likes this stuff. This is not experimental filmmaking at all. This is experimental performance being filmed in the most obvious way. I mean, that's there, a, that, that's very that's a good point actually. Yeah. There's a the, the only part about it that could be seen as experimental is the idea that um, the camera's uninterested in giving you the full picture of what's being performed. Right. This is. In many ways, if, if you're interested primarily in staging, right, this is incredibly well staged. This is bordering on, at times, um, big golden Hollywood production staging. There's a lot of fucking people on set, and they're doing a lot of stuff, and that stuff has to be coordinated. And there's a lot of work to coordinate that. And the only part of this filming, in the sense of what the camera is doing and what we're being shown, that feels at all to me edgy is the idea that uh, whoever filmed this doesn't give a fuck if you get to see everything that's going on. It's almost irrelevant whether you get to see it or not. I'm sure that that's intentional. However, it's not, I think, enough to say that the filmmaking is experimental. The performance is experimental. What we're actually seeing is, is, is still mostly representational. It's just choosing not to be fully representational. It doesn't care that there's stuff happening that you don't get to see. And the editing of that... That, that extends, by the way, to the, to the celebrities in yes. the cast. Yes. Right? I mean, those names that we mentioned, Buck Henry, Raul Julia, Carol Kane... The, all of them are only appear in one sequence, and yes. most of them are in the background, not yes. not in the foreground. Yes, and I and I understand that because of the power of this uh, person as a presenter of avant garde uh, 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 theater, that then this film probably carried some weight to it. But it doesn't feel to me like the filming of it represents a, a, an, an insight or a new idea of what cinema can be. Um, and that's not to then criticize the content of the performance, which is a whole other question sure. uh, that we have. But when it comes, if we're just talking about um, the cinema of it all, it's not clear to me that what the way it was filmed represents any new way of filming something unless uh, outside of the idea that there isn't a huge concern of saying just because someone worked really hard on this choreography – that doesn't mean anyone needs to see it. That's the only thing that seems to be a little bit different. Um, I, I think. I think we. I think we can. I think there's a lot here to talk about. Um, I want to. I want to step in immediately and say I felt the same way. I felt challenged by this. Um, the good part of that challenge is that I, at parts, I was paying very close attention because I wanted to find a thread to hold on to. And for me, with experimental Mm -hmm. performances, be they theatrical or cinematic, there's two threads I'm looking for, intellectual and emotional. That's not to suggest that those are separate. But what I find is that because I'm not formally trained in this kind of art, I don't have a lot of formal experience, the ways that I often connect is there's some intellectual thread that I can grab onto that helps me find my way through the, the spectacle of what's happening, or there's some emotional response that the, 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 the events and spectacle that's being depicted elicits from me, and while those emotions may not even 
even be the intent of the author. Who the fuck cares what their intent is? I'm feeling what I'm feeling, and there's something to explore there about the ways that it elicits that feeling from me. Uh, the struggle here is I didn't find a lot of it engaging enough for me to even get to the intellectual and emotional threads, and, and we'll get to more of why that is. Uh, putting that aside and I, and I for a moment, because I want to come back to some of that analysis, I did find myself with one big question that I suspect neither one of us has a good answer for. Um, <laughs> hey, Doug, what the fuck was this about? I think at its core, it's about a woman in crisis, right? Mm -hmm. She may or may not be a celebrity. She's asked for her autograph several times, but sometimes she says that she's not famous. But someone of note, a woman is in some sort of mental health likely crisis. We don't know exactly what her health crisis is, but she's brought to a doctor. She's told to rest. She has a birthday party. She goes on a trip. These are things that we can point out because there are sequences in it that re reflect it, even though they keep going back and forth. And I think that it's meant to be some sort of commentary on her ex exploitation or maybe her lack of control in a lot of what happens to her. Um, certainly she is groped by the doctor. We do see that explicitly. doesn't seem like a very particularly good one, though. It's also hard to tell if we're supposed to be taking a lot of what we see literally or what or it's just supposed to be, you know, her perception of things. There are times where she speaks directly to the camera. And so there is that breaking of the fourth wall that you mentioned earlier. Um, I do think that, that Kate Manheim's performance is very impressive because of the range of what she has to do. But by the time that she's dressed as a chicken and clucking on stage at the end, I don't know what we're supposed to take from that. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because um, the description that you included here, I so I had read a bit about this too in an effort to try to understand it. Um, at the level at which this form of performance is meant to be connected to the subconscious so that the idea of, of meaning presented on the surface is deconstructed, not in the more technical sense, but in just the basic like pulling apart sense. Uh, and so that the, the, the uh, medium itself is meant to elicit something more subconscious than uh, f in the, in the forefront of your mind. I appreciate that. And then reading about his idea of theatrics itself being hysterical. I get that. Um, creating a piece for your uh, theater group that is based on the idea that all theatric is, is is in some way an exploration of the hysterical and the subconscious that is about a hysterical woman seems to – I feel like he's putting a hat on a hat to some extent. Like <laughs> it's It just seems weird. It, I'd feel differently if I knew all of his other pieces because then this would just be one more topic to explore. Sure. But considering how – uh, visceral and libidinal. I think a lot of this is meant to be having it also then be about this woman's experience as someone who's being conceived of as hysterical, which let's be really clear is not a real thing. That is a way for, uh, that is literally a patriarchal term created to control women. So putting it within that framework is, is inevitably going to make me think of systems and patriarchy and stuff like that. Um, I think those are intentional in this particular case though. I right? think that's I mean, true but then doing it in this format I it just felt like too if there too many too many things at once to sort of pull apart um and in the end I couldn't really find either the emotional response or the uh or the intellectual thread to really like pull on to connect to um and I I too other than just the general idea of what we're seeing is not 
I the question of what if what we're seeing is real or not doesn't really matter. I think in a way it's supposed to be the real underneath the actual is what we're seeing. You know, it's the truth underneath what is happening in in reality. You know, right? Uh, but man, I it was still that much more convoluted for that. I I I just couldn't I couldn't really get at it. Um, Liam, it, I have a quick question it, for as you. a viewer. Yeah, are those, are those alternative lyrics to Happy Birthday? Are those a real thing? Or is that just something to throw me off guard even more when we're watching it? I had no they, idea. They... I have no idea. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I assumed it I assumed it was made up, but who knows? I don't I have no clue. <laughs> well, okay, so part 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 of my feeling on these uh, on these sorts of pieces of art, just to be even more explicit here, is that um not exclusively, but often there's a sense of spectacle that elicits something from me that um I might find challenging and unpleasant but it's still powerful in its eliciting nature uh, i didn't have a lot of that here i was wondering for you doug were there any um were there any moments whether they were uh disturbing uh upsetting funny interesting challenging whatever it is were there any moments that stuck out to you as particularly uh uh strong in their ability to elicit a response from you do you mean on a visual sense? Either way, because I mean, I think one thing I'm thinking is, um, I'm unsure how the visuals helped at times <laughs> with what I was hearing, and I think that's on purpose. I think it's actually meant to be uh, juxtaposition instead of synchronicity, you know. Uh, but even as juxtaposition, I wasn't sure why I was seeing some of the things. There, so, are, there are visuals that stuck out. That stuck out. Let's talk me, about like, that. Her, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to dwell on the positive. What were some of the things that sure. felt powerful? But th- I don't think these visuals are. Way, uh, they stick out in a way that is entirely separate than they would have on stage. Like her really strange sure. walk yes. that she does yes. when she's like running towards yeah, the train. I, I, I mean, I think here's the thing, Doug. I'm going to put us. I'm, I'm saying, and people can accept this or not accept it. The fact that this is a movie doesn't help it, period. I'm already done with that. No. Now I'm just yeah. talking about the material itself. Whether you're seeing this as an audience member or watching it on our TV like we did, does any of it work visually or auditorially for you to elicit a response uh, regardless of what the content of that response might be? Yeah, it's hard, right? Because like even the things that did stick out to me like, – and the audio is, is a big part of that because that's another thing that's meant to really throw you off is there's constant like digging bells and honking horns and they're supposed to i think represent specific moments or things to kind of bring you back uh to other moments that you've seen there's also intertitles which i mean they might work a little bit differently on stage but all of that can be recreated in the theatrical experience and probably would be uh more effective right that something that you can't tune out in any way something that you are forced to pay attention to because it's it's being acted out right in front of you that is i think one of the the biggest limitations of a filmic version of a play like this or or a theatrical experience like this is that your attention isn't drawn towards it as strongly so you know i i was left feeling like oh did i understand that and that's what you're trying to in the in your back of your mind you're like am i am i grasping this in the way that i'm supposed to be grasping it And then things are repeating and it's like, well, they're repeating. So there must be important that they're repeating it. But there's also, frankly, and I don't think this is a a, a criticism. There's a lot of nonsense in this, right? It's the whole point of it is that it's like a lot of cacophony of nonsense. You know what movie it reminded me of the most? And this might be a strange comparison is Frank Zappa's movie 200 Motels, 
which is like at least that movie has some sort of narrative bent, but it very much felt the same way, which is just like a bunch of nonsense. And your uh, tolerance for that sort of level of nonsense is going to uh, tell you a lot about whether you're going to be able to <laughs> enjoy 80 minutes of this. I think um, what I'm what I'm thinking of, Doug, that I'm trying to get at here, right, is there's a moment that you uh, you brought attention to in our notes here that I think sticks out as a as a moment that feels like it could be familiar for people who are used to this kind of art. And that, of course, is the Jesus Christ, our feet hurt. So that's like a gag that is repeated enough. Well, that, explain it. Explain the yeah, go So there's a, there's a chorus of women who are waiting to see the doctor who just say in chorus, Jesus Christ, our feet hurt really loud. Right. And it's this gag is repeated over and over again. And in, in this kind of art, you know, for you know, the the starting something as a joke that in its repetition becomes more sort of uh, 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 frustrating and then perhaps becomes meaningful at some point is like a common sort of thing, uh, trope in this kind of art. Uh, in this case, it never gets anywhere for me. I, I just it just keeps happening, and I was never able to connect with it in any way beyond. They're yelling it again. It feels weird. You know. You know what I'm saying. And it. Do you think that if if if, if this moment, like this repeated moment of Jesus yes. Christ, our feet hurt, if it was happening in front of you in a theatrical context, would people be laughing every time it happened? So this is what I was getting to, Doug. Yeah. This is the point at which I found myself asking a question, which I should have put in the notes, but you brought up ahead of time before we started recording. Is this a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it irrelevant either way? You know what I'm saying? Like what what right. I what I am used to in this kind of performance is the line between drama and comedy is irrelevant because oftentimes the comedy is only used to bring a point home more dramatically. Uh, but there are moments here that are so ridiculous that I suspect were I in an audience, we would at least la- we would at least laugh once. That laughter might turn to uncomfortable silence. But that would also be a powerful response, I suspect. You know what I mean? And yet watching this, I felt without any sense about whether this was meant to be farcical or entirely serious, perhaps too serious, or whether that distinction even mattered. Uh, And I'm okay if it doesn't matter, if that distinction is not meaningful in this context. I just didn't know. I couldn't tell how serious I was supposed to be taking what I was seeing. And I kind of wanted to know what your read on that was. If you thought this was a mixture of comedy and drama or if that distinction didn't matter or, or if you weren't sure either. All I'm doing is picturing myself in the audience in a performance of this and wondering if I'm allowed to laugh at something, you know? Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, there's been a, a, a real annoying trend over the last say decade or so uh, in repertory cinemas, when they show older movies, that people just laugh at all sorts of shit. Anything that seems old or out of date, people are just laughing their heads off. And it's just, and like that, and it's annoying, and, it, and it's kind of confusing as well. But it, the people are, who are viewing it are viewing it in a very different context than what it was designed to be viewed as. And I feel like we're, we're suffering from that a little bit as well. Theoretically, anyone who saw this movie in theaters in 1981 had some familiarity with the people involved in bringing it to them. So we're, we're really, you know, we're very alienated from it, even with the ability to look it up and, and read about it ahead of time. 
But in terms of knowing whether this is supposed to be comedic, I went into it with the idea that it was all supposed to be dramatic. And then I found myself finding things amusing and wondering whether I was supposed to. I do think that there are little there are little clues throughout that we are supposed to find certain things amusing. Maybe the kind of over-the-topness of the Doctor's performance. Maybe the fact that Buck Henry is here, someone who's you know tied into the world of comedy. That said, to describe this as comedic would be a massive stretch. Uh, and I think at its core, it's something we are supposed to take very seriously, even if it's presented in a way that is sometimes very over-the-top and hysteric. Yeah, I, I agree. I think... Um... This is actually a good place to bring in the something you already referenced, but I wanted to talk about more explicitly because it it isn't that we're completely unfamiliar with everything like this because, as you said, we have this Yodorowsky podcast, right? And uh, it's impossible, in my mind, to talk about his movies without uh, the art of clowning in mind, without the circus in mind, without some sense of the comedic in mind even if there are large sections that would not be funny, the idea of what comedic performance is is often at play but sure. between the mime aspects, between the use of violence as almost slapstick at times. To, sure. to, and, and, but often with him, the deployment of comedic tropes is simply to heighten the horror or the, the alienation yeah, yeah, yeah. or the whatever, right? And so I'm willing to give that to this performance i guess what i'm saying here doug too is that i'm unsure whether i agree and i think my first point is that in person this would be a lot more powerful than it was watching it especially in this low res format that was almost distractingly poorly you know maintained but i also suspect having watched it i don't know that there's enough here that i'd care even in person i'm not convinced actually about the content films of this yeah, thing. I mean, and just so, going, yeah, yeah, sorry. It, all, I, I, yeah, just all I was going to say is to make that connection. Like, how would you think of this compared to the avant-garde person we talk about all the time? Well, the thing is, Jodo's tonal shifts, you know, sometimes they can be off-putting, certainly. Um, but they always seem to be moving towards a central feeling that he's trying sure. to present to the audience. They also have, all of them that we've watched have have a plot, Right, they have a plot that they're moving towards. Usually, it's some sort of goal that the lead character that we can identify as a lead character is moving towards, even if how they're moving towards it is very surrealistic visually. And that's another thing; they're also incredibly visual, which this isn't. But um, I think the tone of this movie is incredibly consistent. The tone is 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 off putting, but it's consistent all the way through. And that's probably one of the troubles that makes it so difficult in wondering, you know, kind of figuring out what we're supposed to take out of it, because there are moments from the first 10 minutes that, you know, literal dialogue and, and, and sound cues that repeat at the, in the final 10 minutes, it feels like it's almost a loop as you watch it. Yeah, so yeah. it's hard to compare it to Jodorowsky's work, which is again, so visual that is still, I think playing with the tropes of film and filmmaking when this is a movie so steeped in theater. I mean, I know that, that uh, Jodorowsky's background is in theater, but, um, once he once he did Fondo Elise, it felt like a lot of that theatricality was out of his system, and he was you know really committed to the medium of filming. Well, I think he also understood that the camera was part of the part of the thing, <laughs> uh, which is not part of this 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 format. But I even think content wise, 
because I think Jodo's work is um, this is going to sound like critical of him, but I don't mean it that way. It's less intellectual. I feel like there's a lot going on here that is um, that feels less visceral to me. And when it gets down to things that are, I think, meant to be a little more visceral, it it isn't as effective as I as I think it could be. Um, and that's Jodo's I, work never feels like it's saying, "Hey, do you get it?" You get it. Yeah, that's that's the that's the thing, right? And because because he's trying, uh, whether people think he's successful or not is up to the viewer. But he's trying to get to a level where if you haven't read the fucking things he's read, there's still something going on that you can respond to. If it, it feels like to me, you don't need to have read the mystics that he's pulling from to feel something about what you're seeing. This thing, I think, is also trying to do that. I mean, that's essentially what it's trying to do. It's trying to get to your subconscious. But the way that it's getting there feels a little bit more wrapped in pretense than I think it wants to be. And I never had that sort of visceral response that I think any theater that claims to be connecting to your subconscious should have. I just didn't have it. And maybe that's maybe that's my failure as a viewer, Like, like which sounds very self-eviscerating in a silly way, but I actually think that's true. I think sometimes art is reaching for something successfully or unsuccessfully that the audience can't follow them there. And that's okay. I don't think it's, I don't think uh, it needs to be on uh, the, the director to appeal or, or whoever the creator, let's say, because this goes for theater too, to appeal to every audience member. Not everything is meant for every audience. That's fine. I'm saying as an audience member, this was definitely not meant for me. I could not <laughs> I could not connect, even to the moments that seemed smart. There are parts of this that I felt were witty in in the staging and in the performance. And yet I still was like, I don't know what the fuck we're supposed to be doing here. And again, I don't need a clear picture. I'm fine yeah. with a light at the end of a tunnel. I don't need to know fully where I'm going. But I, I just felt in the fog this whole time, yeah. and not in a fun way. Uh, sometimes, yeah, we, 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 I mean, look, anyone who's listened to us at this point know that we don't require handholding. We don't right. mind being frustrated when we're watching uh, films. But this, this feels like something that it feels like someone shouting in your face, just nonsense, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it's like, and at the end, they're like, okay, that's that's all it is. What did you take away from that? And I'm like, she's. She's frustrated. <laughs> well, I so I I do I think you did this a little bit. I do want to give respect about the performances in this. I think there sure. are some very silly but very well executed silly performances. There are some very serious performances that I think are pretty good. I gotta ask Doug just at like a fun level. Do you think you could be in this? <laughs> I could be. I could have like a uh, uh, the great actor Wallace Shawn appears in this movie yes. in, a, in the background uh, in in some of the party scenes in it. I don't think he has any lines in the whole thing. Hey, I could be one of those people, right? I could I could walk around. It's not like this I think is he says one thing. I think he says one yeah, thing. Maybe so, right? And maybe he's part of the chorus when they're singing "Happy Birthday" and shit like that. But it's also, yeah. I mean, I guess so. I have to say, I've been waiting this entire time for you to say two words about this, Liam, and and I'm a little disappointed that you didn't. What's that? I was expecting this to be pure, uncut white nonsense. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, for when it comes, it, here's here's my problem. When it comes to art like this, it is very easy to describe it as as what it is, which is white, white nonsense. My problem, my problem is that. Um, I don't know that that's entirely true because I do know that there are creators of color who have dipped their toe into this sort of thing. 
And I want to take their efforts to do that, not as their attempt to recreate white nonsense, right. but to but to ask, does this medium work for what I want to do, for what I want to talk about? And because I suspect that under the surface of all this nonsensory is actually a deep concern about patriarchy. I think that's, sure. in the end, if we had to say what this is about, like we're in Bible study and we don't know what to say, so we just go, Jesus? <laughs> because, you know, at some level it's all about Jesus. That's how this feels. Like if I was in this reading group and I had to, Liam, what do you think? I just go, patriarchy? Like, of course it is, because it's about a woman who is being treated poorly. Yeah. There we go. Patriarchy it is. But uh, but how is it specifically about patriarchy? I'm fucking lost. Yeah. Other than the fact that she's having a bad time and there are many awful men around her. But that's easy. Anyone can get there, right? And what I don't want to do is simply dismiss the fact that they are trying to do this thing as entirely white nonsense because I think that there are people who've done things that aren't that far from this that I might find powerful and meaningful and 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 yes they are as white as nutella but i fucking love nutella you know what well, i mean and even this could be powerful yes in a different context right i, I mean, think that's it, possible just, just but i'm not yeah. as convinced as you are i, sure. I, well, suspect, I don't know i don't know if i'm fully convinced yeah. outside of i just find the theatrical experience to be right. invigorating i agree i agree i agree seeing this in person would be a totally different experience i might find it just as confusing but at least having those people yell jesus christ my feet hurt uh in, in, in our in my face would be a lot more interesting than this low res video i mean this is i've seen i've seen terrorists threaten videos better than this shit like this looks I didn't and, think it looked that bad. <laughs> oh, I couldn't. I wanted to jump out a fucking window. It was driving me nuts. Um, okay, uh, let's let's leave all this behind because we're being critical here, and I think we're being critical in a way that is not unjustified. But it does represent a little bit about like maybe we're out of our depth. I think that's impossible. I don't want to write that off. That it's like no, this thing fucking sucks, and and whatever. It's very- I, I reject that idea a little bit simply because what right does this movie have to make me out of my depth? I mean, oh, one hundred percent. You know, I'm a cultured filmmaker. Uh, film, it's not filmmaker. I'm a cultured film fan. I watch a lot of different shit. How could this be beyond me? If it is, maybe, maybe it is. Maybe I'm not smart enough to get it. But it's just like, well, then who the fuck is it for? Well, again, that's that's my other sort of implicit critique that maybe I should make explicit. This is for people who already like his fucking plays, Doug. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. actually think anyone is going to watch this shit who doesn't already appreciate this kind of art in live. And like, like, I don't think anyone who's just a fan of movies who's never seen an avant-garde play is going to watch this and go, "Fuck, I'm in, man. This is it. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm on board." Like, it just doesn't. It's not effective that way. But I do think that there are, there might be some limitations on our end that I'm just acknowledging as a way to be respectful. It doesn't change the fact that I don't think it works. I don't even think yeah. it works as a visceral piece of art. I don't think it elicited any anything from anyone. I suspect that some of the positive reviews on Letterboxd are fucking posturing. If your whole positive review has no content to it about why it's so good then don't write it it's not worth writing something about a movie this confusing that just says wow it's so great i'm sure you understand and if you don't i guess it's not for you yeah it's not for yeah. me eat my i i, I hate feet. saying that but i have to i have to say i agree with that 100 <laughs> i i mean i get it like i get that for some people maybe they don't have time or whatever i get i'm not saying you're obligated to write anything meaningful on letterboxd i just wrote so many reviews that didn't just read as positive they were like not only is this good, but if you don't get it, I guess you just don't get it. You know what? <laughs> That's a review for Donnie Darko. <laughs> Bro, I, I, there's, I mean, you know, I live in a world like that. I listen to a bunch of music that if you don't get it, you're never going to. And, but what I don't do is go around saying, and that makes me better than you. I get it because there's something wrong with me because I want 
a bunch of discordant noise that's repetitive that's been playing the same three chords since 1981 over and over again. I want that. There's something wrong with me that I want that. For for people to write this review of a movie they know that must be confusing if anyone stumbled onto it in a tone that says you know, if you don't get it, you never fucking will. That's not helpful. Who are you helping? Why did you write that? Like, I don't under, anyways, I, I don't want to harp on that. I want to get back to what I was trying to transition to, which is Carol Kane. You know, she is. Oh, great. Carol Kane. Oh, a wonderful so, actress. She is oh so briefly in this. Oh, so briefly. But I want to know what you thought of her performance in this, in this piece, let's call it. A triumph, Liam. <laughs> what did she say? Vice versa. I think she says, yeah. um, she, uh, and she, that's she taps on, she taps on a window in a very menacing way yeah and uh and that's it i mean her part is as big as ral julia's part which he shows up and he picks up something off the yes. ground outside of a, a train but because of the quality of the video i don't know what the fuck no it idea. was not a clue <laughs> and that is that is the entirety of the performance uh when i was saying earlier that you know the the opening credits even mention, like, with the help of the Screen Actors Guild, we have some real familiar actors here. They're here, you know, special appearances, and then they give them nothing. Like, they they might as well be anybody else in the cast, which in some ways is kind of funny, right? Like, that is kind of an amusing thing to bring in an Academy Award-nominated actress and have her just say something in the background. And then it's like she – she you might even be like, was that Carol Kane just then? <laughs> it is uh, – I cannot – I cannot judge the performance in any way whatsoever. All I can say about it is, well, there must be something about this style of theatrical performance that appealed to these performers. And I think that, beyond anything else, gives gives me more pause into trying to take it more seriously, right? That this is something that, that they saw some substance in and thought that it was worthwhile to put their time towards. So I need to at least give it that benefit of the doubt. Yeah, okay. I will do that as well <laughs> on, on on behalf of Carol Kane. Uh, I, we watched I, it. We gave it our fucking time. I'll say. I'll say. I'll say, Doug. I think you're downplaying how cool it was when she tapped on the little window. That okay. that moment, I was like, "All right, Carol Kane, I see you. You're you're here. You're you're present." Uh, did I want more from her than the tapping on the window? I did. In fact, I thought when when the camera. I mean, for those of you who are smart enough not to find this and try to watch it. Uh, the camera zooms in on her tapping on the window in a way that this camera has not been interested in zooming in on other things for, for the whole run. I gotta be honest, Liam, I don't remember this moment. Oh, I I do. I do very strongly. There's a shot of the woman and she's leaning against this see-through. It's like a glass wall. And Carol Kane comes up behind her while someone else is talking to her and just goes, a tip, a tip, a tip, tap on the window. And I thought, uh, here we go. Carol Kane's going to do a bunch of crazy shit. And then that's it. Then she says one other thing and that's it. Then it's like, she's gone. And I thought, fuck the way that we were focused. Like it, you know, the camera's technically focused on our main actress, but she comes up around her in such a menacing way that I thought uh, she's going to do something crazy. She's going to be part of this whole scene. She has nothing to do. There's nothing for her. And it's a real bummer to me. So I'm just focusing on that one moment where I had hope, Doug. I had hope that we we're going to get Carol Kane screaming about her feet or Jesus Christ or something. You know, so. Oh, well. All right. That that was it. That We're done here. Strong medicine. I cannot possibly sometimes we recommend stuff for the people who listen to the show who are Carol King completists like ourselves. And I will go so far as to say that I don't know that I even recommend this to Carol King completist. I don't know that I can. 
I just, it, if you can find it and you want to watch it, I don't think you have to avoid it. It's not like it's terrible per se, but I don't think it's worth finding it if you aren't passionately uh, in need to, because it, it just really felt like not not a good use of our time. Anyways, uh, on the next episode, we're going to be talking about 1982's Pandemonium, a movie people might be familiar with because it not I, I don't know that I can say recently, but not too long ago, had a Blu-ray release from our friends over at Vinegar Syndrome. That's in right. fact, I own that Blu-ray, and I'm looking forward to not being able to watch it at home. So that's great. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pandemonium from 1982. It's a, a film. Uh, the description says, a former high school student who always wanted to be a cheerleader decides to reopen the cheerleading program at her former high school after years of closure for being targeted by a serial killer. Woo! Yeah, it's a comedy horror film, Liam. Yeah, I am i don't often like 80s comedy horror films, but I'm still excited yeah. to watch it. I'm still excited. Yeah, Compared I, to this shit, I'm really excited to watch it. The cast is just bonkers. Uh, yeah. And it is, it's from the director of Alice Sweet Alice, for people who know that movie. Uh, so, I mean, there's, I have not necessarily heard a lot of greatness about it, but I'm very familiar with the trailer for it. Uh, and I've always been very curious to check it out. And uh, on the next episode, we'll be checking out 1982's Pandemonium. Yep. Now, Doug, if people not only want to hear that episode, but all of our most recent episodes, where, where could they check us out? You can always check out uh, the latest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord, uh, all of our podcasts under that title, over at Cinepunks.com. You can find uh, Cinepunks on all of your social media networks of note, including Instagram and on Twitter under that name, or do a search on Facebook. There's also a Cinepunks Discord, uh, which is invite only uh, if you want to be part of it. We don't put out the invite or the link to it uh, publicly, but you can uh, contact us on the Cinepunks website or even on the Cinema Smorgasbord website, and we can uh, get you that link. A lot of cool people doing cool stuff over there and lots of diverse podcasts over at cinepunks.com as well you can check out including uh, other ones that liam hosts including the cinepunks podcast itself as well as horror business uh new episodes uh arriving fairly regularly uh, if you want to check out the entire archive of praising kane you can find that over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or uh you can find us on twitter at cinemasmorg s-m-o-r-g lots of episodes there we're going chronologically as you can tell through the career of carol kane but we have other podcasts that are not as uh as um committed to chronology, including ones devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, George Kennedy, Alejandro Jodorowsky, as we've mentioned on this show, uh, Vic Diaz, et cetera, et cetera, including Paul Bartel. There's a, a Eurocrime podcast, all that available over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, and of course, you can find Liam on Twitter at Liam Rules, that's R-U-L-Z, and I'm on there as well at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. Thanks, Doug. I really appreciate that. And we really appreciate you <laughs> checking out this episode, even though you probably didn't know which strong medicine. Wait, I already forgot the name of the movie. Is it strong which, medicine which or one? strange medicine? Oh, it's strong medicine. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate you checking out this episode, even though you probably didn't know what Strong Medicine was. And we appreciate your support. If you love this show, go ahead and toss us a review uh, on whatever podcast uh, catcher that you use. But also tell a friend. Just tell somebody. You know, like, I don't know. It could be your therapist. It could be your cousin, Charlie. Uh, it could be your neighbor, the one you like, not the other one. Uh, and that would be great. We'd really appreciate that. Uh, until next time, though, we're going to wish you a good night and let you know that Jesus Christ our feet hurt.